0: if you would take your bibles and turn to acts chapter 17 and uh if you haven't noticed just in case you you came in this morning with only one eye opened rather than both um i I don't know you there's this extra parking spots out here and uh so what that means is uh you have room to invite some neighbors friends workers enemies uh i mean anyone you want and we have room for them so we're uh we're excited about that. Isn't that pretty cool? How many parked on the new spot just to try it out? I mean, not that really you're going to feel any different, but uh, it's kind of nice, isn't it? And uh, you didn't have to walk as far, so that's good. And so uh, take advantage of that. But now we get this whole big parking lot to fill. And then, uh, so that's exciting. We have an opportunity to have some impact in the world that we live in and inviting people to church and so forth. But not because we're so great, but because God is, right? God is so awesome, He's so exciting, and I'm so thankful for the work that He's doing in all of our lives, and uh, I'm excited about that. And uh, one more thing is that not only do we have an opportunity to invite more people because we have more parking spaces, but we have an activity Saturday night, right? Trunk or treat? Yeah, the, yeah, oh that's right, yeah. And uh, hopefully you've been inviting some people, your neighbors, friends, coworkers, loved ones, enemies and all that, invite them here. Because they're going to see an opportunity, have an opportunity to see God's love in our people, and uh, have fun while they're doing it, to you know, sharing the gospel and so forth. And uh, I'm just telling you, I don't know who the powers will be that are judging the cars, but being that I have like this much invested in it, I should get somewhere with that. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Hopefully you're on Acts 17 now and uh, we'll have an opportunity to continue where we picked up last week. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, that you're a God that fights our battles. And Lord, uh, yes, we know that Satan is alive and well and his demons are everywhere, but God, you said greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Lord, uh, we're thankful that you fight our battles as we are on our knees praying to you and finding our strength in and through you. And so Lord, we are thankful for that and uh Lord, just these songs that we sing. Lord, it's, they're more than just words. They're prayers, they're commitments, they're opportunities, Lord, to reinforce our love for you and uh Lord, we just pray that you are glorified through these songs Lord as we really sing them as a part of our heart and our praise to you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for each one that's here. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, through this next text of Scripture in Acts 17. I ask, God, that you would remind us of things maybe we have once heard and have forgotten. Or, Lord, maybe it's something new that you will teach us this morning through your Spirit, Lord. But I pray that regardless of uh, where, our, where we may be in our walk with you, Lord, that you would speak to us. May your Holy Spirit make things clearly understood so that we can live it out. And Lord, help us to Lord bring glory to you in all that is said and done. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we ended last week's message, uh, we heard Paul tell them that he perceived that they were very religious, right? Uh, in verse twenty-two, and after all, he said they were a city given over to idols in verse sixteen, right? So, given all the idols that he had, you know, observed, he said, "You're a very religious city." And we learned from the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that the love of pleasure, the absence of pain, and, uh, self-mastery were the best things to attain in life. And, you know, after all, um, Paul observed that the Athenians loved to spend time sitting around discussing anything that was new. Uh, it could be you know, what's going up at the other end of town. It might be how someone's responding to the war that's taking place in Israel. It didn't matter that they would sit around and they would spend their time thinking and dwelling upon anything that might be new that they could discuss and philo- philosophize over and so forth. But add all these things up, you find that they were really not much different than what we see in our world today, right? I mean, we still live in a world where people uh, love pleasure, hate pain, and all about self-mastery. And uh, that was the Epicurean. That was the Stoics. That was the Athenians. That was the Aeropagus where they would gather and, and talk about the things of the day. And Solomon reminded them that there is nothing new under the sun, right? And you can sit there and look at everything that's going on, and we we'll observe what they were studying, what they were talking about, what they were observing thousands of years ago, and it's really nothing different than today. Nothing new as Solomon said and so uh, Solomon was right and so uh, let's pick up once again by reading verses 22 and 23 uh, we kind of mentioned on it we started that last week uh, it says then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said men of Athens I perceive that in all things you are very religious for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown god therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him i proclaim to you so according to a.t robertson it says if an altar was dedicated to the wrong deity the athenians feared the anger of those gods i mean just in case we have forgot one those gods that we may have forgotten might get upset with us they might get angry with us and force their you know, wrath upon us if we forget them so just in case we forgot to highlight one of the gods that are around us we're going to make an altar to the unknown god and so just in case we forget one of those gods we'll dedicate this altar to that one well paul's message to the athenians in verse 23 24 once again uh you are worshiping a god you do not know isn't that amazing they don't even know who the God is, but just in case there's one out there we forgot, we're going to worship Him. How absurd is that? When you really think about it, that's a really absurd idea to think that you can worship a God you don't even know. Uh, but not only that, their unknown God was actually knowable, right? They, 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 I mean, if there was actually a God that they thought they might forget, well, who's the one that they might actually forget? Go worship Him. I mean they could actually know it but you can know the real true God. Uh you know, and you think about this, how can you know that there's a real true God? Well, right now we're doing a study on Wednesday nights on, you know, you know, the God questions and we're talking about how do you know there's a God? Well, God's word makes it so clear if you believe the Bible. He says in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So when you look at this world that we live in, when you just observe what is around us. How many of you have ever been on vacation and you've had to stop at the awe and wonder of the scenery that you're looking at? Man, as I drove through the Appalachian mountain train, as I've stood on top of some of the cliffs in the Ozark Mountains, as I've stood at over seven mountains in central Pennsylvania, everywhere you go, there is beauty. And you look at it and you say, there's got to be a God. There is a Creator who made all of this, Right? You know, we talk about throwing a watch, you know, you can't do it today because you can't throw an Apple watch up in the air and all the parts go everywhere, you know, but you remember the old watches that had a million parts inside, you take a part, throw it up in the air, and then you you drop it, parts are going to go everywhere, right? The bottom line is somebody had to take each and every one of those intricate little parts and work them together so that all the cogs would turn the right way and that the little Sprockets would go the right direction and all the little springs would work just in, you know, conjunction with each other. Somebody has to design everything that we look at. And by that, God's Word says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, it says, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all th- things were created through Him and for Him. So not only do we see through creation that there is a God, that a God who created all things, but God didn't just create them, He created all things for His own pleasure, for His own will, for His own desires. And He is the Lord of heaven and earth. According to Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Do you realize that God said everything that is in this world, I not only created it, I not only control it, but they're mine. Think about that. That is so contrary to the world that we live in, isn't it? Uh, This whole world is all about number one. It's all about me. What I can get out of it and what I can get and what I can attain and the positions and the power and 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 the pleasure, it's all about me. And God says, you've got it all wrong. This is not your place. It is mine. And especially to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He says, I purchased you with my blood. Therefore, you are not your own. And he says, because you're not your own, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are His. So God makes it very clear that this world that we live in, in fact, in Psalm chapter 19, there's a very familiar passage that talks a lot about the creation that we live in. And the first four verses of that passage say this. Psalm 19, verses 1-4 through says this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night into night reveals knowledge. When you think about that, he says, when you see everything that is going on, day after day, night after night, he says, that reveals the glory of God, the Creator who made all these things. And then he goes on, verse 3, he says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard say, what in the world does that mean? It says the creation that you observe speaks forth. That creation says something. And guess what? There is no place that you can go in this universe, in this world that we live in, where you cannot hear the voice of God speaking through His creation. And verse 4 says, their line has gone throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them He has set a tabernacle for the sun. He says you can actually worship from seeing and hearing the voice of God in creation. Isn't that amazing? And then Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says, because God has placed Himself in the heart of His creation, He says all mankind, when they see this creation and know that there is a Creator and know that there is a God, He says they are without excuse. You mean the person in the deepest, darkest part of Africa is without excuse for not knowing there is a God? Absolutely. There is no one in this universe that can say, "Well, I didn't know that there was not a God. Everyone can know that there is a God, and according to First Kings chapter eight verse 27, it says, but will, God, "But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, How much less the temple which I have built? He says, "I am everywhere." He goes, "I cannot be contained." Is't that amazing? that we serve a God who cannot be contained, and yet the Athenians were worshiping and putting an idol up to the unknown God. Because Paul says, I want you to know the God that you can know. Uh, we went through Acts chapter 7 uh, many months ago, but in Acts chapter 7, verse 48, let me just read a couple of verses here. In verse 48 it says, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He says, listen, you look around. He says, you cannot make a place for me because I've made everything already. It's all mine. I created it. And I created it for myself. And I invite you to be a part of it. But the reality is that all of this is already His. And He makes that very clear. But look at verses 25 and 26 in our text. He goes on and says this, Nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. He says, you're making an idol to the unknown God. He goes, but the God you can know, He's not worshipped with hands. He's the one who gives life, breath, and all things and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their preappointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings think about that he does not need anything you could give him think about that i mean anytime someone we know goes through a struggle they're facing a difficult time we we usually offer hey is there anything i can do for you is there anything i can get for you is there anything that you need? And we we'll sometimes will give a list and, the, and we mean it from the sincerity of our heart. We want to help somebody. But do you realize that God doesn't need anything that we have? He desires our love. He desires our worship. But there's nothing we can do to improve Him. There's nothing we can do to make His life better. He's God. And He says, I don't need anything. In fact, He says in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He said, if you got a good gift, he says, it's for one reason, I gave it to you. I allowed you to have it. You didn't have it because you're so good, you're so great, you're so wealthy, you're, you made it happen. He said, if you have something, I gave it to you. I allowed you to have it. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, or, you do, or do you despise... The riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. Think about that. Every good thing that you have, every good thing that you could possess. And he lists a few of those things. Think about that. His goodness. How many of you have experienced the goodness of God? Raise your hand. Every single day of our lives, we experience the goodness of God. How about forbearance? Do you know what forbearance is? Think about forbearance. Let me give you a definition maybe you have not maybe heard from this perspective before. How many of you know when you do something wrong, you know it in the conscience of your heart, you know it's wrong? And how many of you? I got two hands and a foot up, know even though that you are doing it and it's wrong that you're doing it, and you kind of think, well, I'll deal with it later. Some of you still aren't telling the truth. That's okay, you can repent later. But the idea is that God is patient with you. This is forbearance. You know that you have sin that you've not dealt with. You know that you should deal with it. But God is giving mercy and grace and patience with you until you do. That's forbearance. How many of you experience forbearance every day? Right? Then he goes on and says, And long-suffering. Wow. That takes patience to a new level. He waits on us and he says these people who have despised the riches of his goodness not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance these things that God does for you on a regular daily basis ought to lead you to a place of repentance so when you experience the fact that you know you're in sin and haven't dealt with it yet and God is being patient with you he's waiting on you and you've experienced his goodness it ought to lead you to a place of repentance. And what is repentance? Not not only acknowledging that I have sinned in my life, but I'm going to acknowledge it in such a way that I'm going to turn my back on it and not partake of that or do it any longer. I'm turning my back on that sin. That's repentance. That's amazing. We are so much recipients of God's mercy and grace. He says, He doesn't need anything from you. He's giving you everything. And He gives to all life, breath, and all things. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, He says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that He may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes the glad heart of man, oil to make His face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. He says, I don't need anything from you but I'm giving you everything you need and want. Isn't that amazing? And list the things that he says. Wine to make your heart glad. Oil to make your face shine. Bread which strengthens your heart. My goodness, he gives everything to us. And one more, First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He's the one who gives and gives and gives that we might enjoy. How many of you enjoyed the things of this life? It ought to make us look back to God who gives us those opportunities. But notice where man came from, verse 26. In verse 26, he makes it very clear. He says, and he made man from one blood. You ever thought about that? I know, I mean, you know, there's the the Hispanics over here and the Germans over there and the Koreans over here and the Chinese over there. And, you know, then we have the blacks and the whites, and then we have this and the that. Did God just make a bunch of different people out of a bunch of different molds and then just throw them all away? No. Do you realize, I don't care whether you're Chinese or Mexican or american or canadian you if you cut yourself you all going to bleed the same color you ever thought about that shame on you if you don't think about that thinking that you're better than someone else because you're born here versus there you may be blessed but you're not better we are all one that's why i love when i have these opportunities to go to india or parts of africa or Mexico, wherever I've been on mission trips, and you you, you come up to them and you give them a hug, and they give you a hug, it's as if we've known each other our entire life. You know what the common thread is? Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because we're all one in Christ. I love what Dr. Chatla used to put, put above his office door in India. He used to say, in Christ there are no castes. You know, in India there are caste systems, Right? I'm from this caste. I'm a brahma. I'm a high, high class, and I don't associate with those of low low class. He said, "When you come to Christ, there are no more castes. We're one in Christ. And if we think we're better than someone, shame on us. We all came from one blood. And all of of man's times are determined and pre-appointed. Think about this. He goes on in verse 26." Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He says all of man came from one blood. All of man's times is determined and pre-appointed, including empires and, and their things. And not only that, number three, all of man's boundaries are established. That means where they live. God allowed different places, to, people to live in different places, and he says, I've established that. God is in control. If you think God just made this thing and then walked away and and turned His back on the world, if you think that you're mistaken what God's Word has said, man is not in control. God is. And it's all for a purpose. You say, well, what is God's purpose? Well, verse 27 gives us that purpose. Verse 27 says, So that, why? Look at verse 26. Let me just reemphasize. He has made man from one blood, every nation a man to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries. Why? Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him through, though He is not far from each and every one of us. God's purpose, number one, so they would seek the Lord and hope that they would grope for Him and find Him. Now, do you catch a word there that's not part of our everyday language? grope when i grew up grope was not a good word anybody else know what i'm talking about don't be groping the girls how many heard that as a kid growing up oh that kid's a jerk he's always groping that was not a kind word when i was growing up as a kid as a teenager the word and its definition has not changed Do you know what the word grope literally means? Touch, feel, grab. That's what it means. It literally means that today still. And what does he say? So that they would seek the Lord and hope that they would grope for Him, reach out to Him, touch Him, grab onto Him, and find Him. That's why He reveals Himself. He says, I don't want you to go through life going like this, wondering where He's at, and just thinking He's out there nebulously somewhere in the universe. He says, I want you to reach for Him, and I want you to touch Him, and lay hold of Him, and grab Him so that you may find Him. That's what the word means. And He said, that's why I've done what I've done. Think about that. If you don't know Him, if you've not sensed Him, maybe it's because you're not seeking for Him. And you're not reaching for Him. And I'm saying, God says, if you will call Me, He goes, I will reveal Myself to you over and over. He makes that so abundantly clear that if you want to know Him, He will be found of you. He says that over and over again. Maybe we need to have one Sunday where we just look at those verses. He says, if you seek Me, I will be found of you. So if you're not finding Him, it could be because you're not seeking Him. He says, but I do what I do that you may grope and find hope. Isn't that amazing? This is what He says is why I exist. Luke 24.39 says, Behold My hands and My feet, that is, I Myself. Handle Me and see Me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He says, I want you to touch Me. I want you to feel that I am flesh. I want you to grab and lay hold of Me. First John 1.1 That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the Word of Life. He wanted them to realize that He is not far from them. In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24 says, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? says the Lord. He says, Listen, I am closer than you think. I am here for you. Isn't that amazing? That we serve a God who is near. That's awesome. Now look at verses 28 and 29. He says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. So Paul, as he's in the Areopagus, as he's talking to the Athenians, he says, Even your poets, the people that you know well and love and respect, even they have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped like the art of man's devising. So, verse twenty twenty nine, we're to notice that we are made in his image. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. He's not made of gold or silver or stone. In other words, he's not an idol. He's not just a small g god. He says, He's not silver, gold, stone. He's not anything like that of art from man's devising. One thing I noticed when I was going through the streets of India in Andhra Pradesh as you go down through the streets, you will see idols everywhere you look. Literally, they're painted on the side of walls. They're in little glass cabinets on all the storefront shelves. They're on the walls of the stores. I mean, there's little, you know, elephant. Monkey gods. I mean, there, you name it. There's just all kinds of. There's a god for you know, for selling you know, shoes and clothing. There's a god for help you know, to help me make more money. There's a god who you know for the weather and the storms. And there's a god for the sun. There's a god for the animals. There's a god. I mean, there's a god for everything. I'm telling you what. There is a god everywhere you look. On every wall, everything you everything you observe, God's everywhere. They are man's devising. Somebody created them. Somebody designed them in their mind and then painted a picture of them or made a sculpture of them. They might be detailed and ornate. They might be covered in gold or silver or have stone on them. But they are all man's devising. What man has created and conjured in his mind. He says, that's not my God. My God is alive. And He's not the art of someone's imagination. But notice how patient God is. Verses 30 and 31. He said, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance to this to all by raising Him from the dead. Can you just say it this way? Let me me paraphrase, paraphrase those two verses. God has exercised divine patience. He has withheld divine judgment. But now the day of repentance is at hand. He's been patient. He has been gracefully patient. But now judgment is at hand. It's time to repent. Think about that. When you think of just how patient God is, His patience will come to an end. I was talking with someone yesterday, and I've said this before. I can remember very clearly, vividly, my dad sitting in his lazy boy recliner, and uh, I was probably in seventh or eighth grade. And I remember my dad looking up at me and saying, The coming of the Lord. It's got to be very clear. I mean, near. I, I can't imagine it being more than another year or two. How many have thought that even now? Raise your hand if you thought that. It's got to be near. You think what more can happen? How much worse can it get? I mean, can it really get any? Just about the time you think it cannot get any worse, it will, and you're going to be go. I would have never imagined. Would you thought you've ever imagined the day where there were more than two sexes? I mean, it used to be male and female, boy and girl, but now there's, I like, guess, 40 you can choose from? I, I don't know. That's where the list is at right now. I'm not sure. Things change. God's Word has not changed. But when you look at this world and you think it can't get any worse, just open your eyes. Bottom line is, God has been patient. But His patience will run out. And if we think, those of us who've acknowledged that we've experienced God's patience, His long-suffering, His forbearance, that we can just continue to do our own thing and not eventually face the wrath and the anger of a just God, we're deceiving ourselves. He says, I am patient so that you come to repentance. But some of you won't come to repentance and you're going to face judgment. Judgment. Romans 3.25 and 26 says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in in His forbearance, there's that word again in Romans 3.25, in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He says, I'm patient, but it's going to run out when you think about this he says in this verse he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained who is that man he has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead who's the only one that has ever been raised from the dead that can save the world Jesus he says by this one man who through His appreciation of our sins, through this one man, you can be made righteous. That's it. And He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. I want to look at one more passage before we wrap this up. In Revelation chapter 20. Turning over there. Uh, it's not fair. He can get up there so fast cheater 20 verse 11 says this then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away there was found no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which was the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades who were, in, uh, were delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Ouch. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, one day we will all stand before God. Not only to see whether our name is written in the book, but also to give an account of our works done on this earth. You see, we can say a lot of things. Well, we're not like those Athenians in the Areopagus, and we're not like those Stoics and those uh, Epicureans who live for the pleasure and the lack of pain and for self mastery. I'm all given to God, but but God's word is so clear. Faith without works is dead. What is the evidence of my life of knowing Him? Is it just mere words? Because if it's only mere words and no action, I have to second guess whether or not we really know Jesus. But one day we will stand and give an account for our works. What will you be judged for? What will be the proof of what you say is in your heart? What will validate your words in your life? I think a lot of us are going to be shocked at what we hear and understand and perceive and observe as we stand before God one day. I, I, in, in 1 John it says that we may stand before God at His appearing and not be ashamed. Oh Lord, I don't want to be ashamed. I want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I know that oftentimes my flesh gets in the way and It's selfish. But how did the people respond that Paul was talking to? Paul gave them very clear he says, You worship an unknown God, I'm going to tell you about the God you can know, the one who will judge you one day according to his righteousness. How did they respond to that? Glad you asked. Verse thirty two and following. It says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others says, Will you hear again? we will hear you again on this matter? And so Paul departed among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius and Aeropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So basically there were three responses to what Paul shared with them concerning Jesus. Some mocked. Question, are there those that mock us in this day and age? Did Paul get all ticked off? Did he say, wait a minute, I'm going to get a sword so I can slash you? Wait, I'm going to go get the other 11 of my posse and come back for you. He didn't. He shared the truth, stood on it in love, and then walked away. But some mocked. Some delayed their thoughts and actions. He says, let's hear some more on this. Let's come back and hear some more of this later. So they hadn't totally dismissed it, but they didn't embrace it either. And then, third, some joined him and believed. So, where are you at in this? Where are you at? Are you mocking him? Well, not, of course, you wouldn't mock him here. You're in church or around other people. I couldn't constantly do that. But how do we sometimes mock God by pretending to be something we're not? In fact, that's the word hypocrite in the Scriptures. It means to have a mask on. It means to be a, a, a an actor in a play. While I'm performing this role as an actor in a play, I have a mask on. I'm making everyone see something that's not really me, but I'm playing a part. But I don't want them to see the me. I want, I want them to see the part I'm playing, right? That's an actor. That's what God's Word says is a hypocrite. Pretending to be something you're not to deceive others to believing you're that something. And when we do that, we make a mockery of who God is if we say that we know Him. If we are hypocritical, deceitful, say one thing to another, that's mocking God. Others are saying, well, I'll get more serious a little bit later. I, I, I want to hear some more about this. We'll get serious later. You know that none of us has the guarantee of tomorrow? Did you know that? Proverbs 27, verse 1 says, Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Not only do we not know what tomorrow brings, we don't know when the Son of Man comes. He says, not even the Son of Man. Only God knows that. We don't know when He comes. He used the example of a thief. He said, if you knew a thief was going to break into your house tomorrow night, you'd be there ready waiting, right? But the problem is, the thief doesn't come when we're ready for him. He comes when we're on vacation when we're out for two days, when we're gone from the house. That's when a thief breaks in. He says that's how the Son of Man will come, as a thief in the night. You don't know when He's going to come. We might think it's tomorrow. It's like, How can this place get any worse? How can He delay His coming? How can can the trumpet not sound? And yet, we don't know when He's going to come. We don't know when we're going to die. Will we be found ready? Don't put it off and say, well, I need to learn more. Second, Second Corinthians 6 says today is the day of salvation. And then number three, some join and believe. And if you're in that category, praise God. You have blessings that you don't even understand awaiting you. I'm telling you, it's going to be an awesome day. The marriage feast of the land. I, can you imagine? How many of you love steak? I'm just telling you, I, I think it's going to be some El Primo prime rib up there. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I'm only guessing. I, I mean, I'm just thinking. Anybody else agree? I'm thinking there's gonna be some good stuff up there. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. I'm just okay. I'm I'm rabbit trail, squirrel, Um, but I'm just thinking it's gonna be prime when you get to heaven one day, and, and to be able to to sit at the feet of Jesus, to ask Noah what it might have been like to, you know, to build the ark in the opposition that he faced. To to talk with Paul about all the things that you... I, I don't know. Your mind can't even comprehend. You'll be blown away by the things that you will observe for those that have joined Jesus. And all the struggles of this life are just a little speck on the timeline of eternity. And we get so focused on that little speck. Oh, woe is me. Poor me. Life is hard. It's hard. People don't like... It's a little speck on the timeline of eternity. This big long line and you're just one tiny little bleep. And it's going to be over. Man, there's so much more I want to say and i got time. Think about this. Your life is so short. Even if you live to be 100 years, and I pray God I don't. I don't want to live that long. I I, 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 I want God to take me when He's ready. I'm ready when He does take me. I have no death wishes. But when He's ready, I'm ready. I, I want to go. There's nothing in this world that I want to stay here for. Nothing. We start living with an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. And things start to fall into place a little bit better. Lord, I do pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I do pray that, uh, Lord, if there be one here today, Lord, that does not know you as their Savior might today be a day of salvation for them. Lord, might today be a day that they would finally put their faith and trust in You. A day that they would finally say, I cannot save myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not kind enough. I don't do enough. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't be nice enough to save a spot for me in heaven. There's nothing I can do but put my faith and trust in Jesus and what He did for me on the cross. And Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone here, Lord, today that does not know You, might today be the day that they finally put their trust in You. Lord, I, be, I pray that we would not be those that would mock. That we would not be those who would say, well, we'll hear more on the matter. We'll decide later. But Lord, that we would believe and join in what You are doing. In Your work. So, God, speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, I also pray for those that may be here this day, Lord, that maybe it's not the unknown God, maybe it's the God they know. It's the job, it's the hobby, it's a relationship, it's a an opinion, it's a position. Lord, it's something that has become an idol in their life, Lord, might they be willing to abolish it today? Lord, that we can draw in fellowship with you, Lord, realizing that you have been patient. That you have been gracious, that you've been merciful. But Lord, you will have just judgment in the end. As we will be judged according to your righteousness. So, God, work in hearts, we pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, every week we have an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I don't know that I know Jesus. Maybe I'm, like he said in the beginning, somewhat religious. Maybe you go to church, maybe you're a nice person. Maybe you give an offering. Maybe you help the poor. None of those things will get you to heaven. None of them. Titus three five in God's word says, "If you believe, the Bible says, not by works of righteousness. In other words, not by good works that I can do, but according to His mercy." Maybe you're here this morning and say, "Pastor, I'm concerned that maybe I don't know Jesus like I think I do. Can I just simply say childlike faith?" You can begin a relationship with him. You say, "Well, Pastor, I'm I, I, I'm just not sure. I'm concerned about it. Would you just look at me so I can pray for you? I'm not embarrassed you, I'm not call you out. But you say, Pastor, I'm concerned. Just look right at me, and I'd love to pray for you. Anyone like that this morning? Just give me a little nod, and I won't embarrass you, not call you out. Just simply, I'm concerned. I'm not really sure, but pray for me. Anyone like that? Then the second question might be for you. Are you a Pharisee? Are you deceiving? Or are you walking in true fellowship? Are you waiting until later to hear more, decide later on how you're going to respond to God? Or say, Pastor, I I I have joined Him, I believe. But there's some commitment areas that are struggling, that are waning. Say, Pastor, God's convicted me in some areas. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes any others say pastor pray for me yes thank you in the back in the front side thank you appreciate that can i challenge all of you who've lifted your hand just to take a moment say god forgive me god is a gracious god he's a merciful god he says he says if you will confess your sin i will forgive you and cleanse you god's word is very clear on that He's a God of grace and mercy, a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, 27, 300 chances. He's a gracious God. Just ask for forgiveness. He'll he'll forgive. But in case there's one of you here today, Lord, that have never trusted in Jesus, can I just simply encourage you to pray this simple prayer? Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I believe that You died on the cross that I might have forgiveness of sins. Please forgive me of my sin. Cleanse my heart. I put my faith and trust in You to save me. Help me to follow You. If you prayed that prayer, it's a simple prayer of faith. My prayer won't save you. I can't save you. But if you prayed that prayer silently in your mind, you can know Jesus. you can have a relationship with him lord i pray for each one who raised their hand their heart towards you this morning lord that you'd allow them to walk in victory i ask, your father lord that they might know your presence lord you said to reach out for me grope for me search me touch me grab me feel me that you may know him lord i pray that For those of us who need to sense your presence, Lord, may we search for you with all of our heart. Because, Lord, you said you will be found of them, found of the one that searches for you. God, I pray that you do a work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, that only you can do. Lord, I pray if there be one here, Lord, that does not know you, may the invitation never close for them until they put their trust in you. But Lord, grant victory this week as we seek to please You and follow You in all that we say and do. For Lord, You alone are worthy. You alone are great. You alone are worthy and deserving of our praise. So Lord, thank You. Praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.